Well, we are wrapping up Colossians this week and next week. Two to go. Amen? We're almost done. Where would you go in the last paragraph if you were the Apostle Paul? You got any guesses? Well, we're going to see today and next week, and we'll be done with Colossians. I think. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll have to do more. I don't know. I think that's going to be it, though. Um, before we jump in, let me give you a couple of announcements. You've got a bulletin, hopefully. If not, there's some on the table there as you come in or grab one on your way out. It's got some announcements in there that you need to be aware of. There is no uh, Christmas program, Hee Haw Christmas program practice today. And so uh, you've got the afternoon off from that. This Wednesday is first Wednesday of the month, and we are doing Christmas dinner here, church family dinner, and it's also our Christmas dinner. Elder Radley, Chef Radley, has put the... Uh, the menu up, I see, on the bulletin board in the hall. And so if you can be with us this Wednesday, sign up for that. Uh, we're asking that you bring cookies. And so bring a dozen of your favorite Christmas cookies, and we'll share those after dinner as we're decorating the church. So it's Hanging of the Greens, our uh, annual uh, Christmas dinner. Uh, what we've been calling cookies and carols, but we're going to have dinner as well this week. And so we'll eat dinner, and then we'll come in here. We'll, uh, we'll help each other decorate. We'll eat some cookies and drink some coffee and cider, whatever we got while we're doing that. And then we'll sing a few carols uh, as we depart. Okay, so if you can be here this Wednesday for that, go ahead and sign up on the bulletin board in the hall because Elder Radley needs to know how much of uh, the good stuff to bring. All right. Uh, also, this Wednesday you will receive the uh, proposed budget for 2014, and it'll it'll be out for uh, at least two weeks, according to our bylaws. Probably going to be more, and uh, it'll come out this Wednesday. It'll be on the front pew, and it'll also I'll have some back in the uh, fellowship hall for you to pick up. There'll be a list of dates on there, uh, opportunities for you to talk to the elders or talk to those who are on the uh, finance team, uh, the lay leaders on the finance team this year, and so you could you could contact them. Contact information will be on the uh, budget as well. And so if you have questions after you get your budget, try your best to go ahead and reach out to an elder, reach out to me, or reach out to one of the members on the finance team that will be listed there as well, and go ahead and get your questions answered before we get to any of the uh, any of the formal vote days, which will also be listed on there as well. All right? So you guys are doing well. Continue to finish well this year uh, as you go into the holiday season. Uh, make sure you finish out the, uh, the year well in your giving unto the Lord and to his work, whether it's here or whether it's to another ministry, make sure you're doing as the Lord directs you. Um, what other announcements? Uh, we are doing pancakes and presents this year at Beef O'Brady's once again, and so that is the 21st, and so next week I'll have a sign out up for that. If you plan on attending, we're going to need plenty of help. We usually pack the restaurant, and uh, hopefully we'll have plenty of gifts to give away, and uh, we'll let the community know, and they'll show up again this year, so we will be doing that. Uh, other than that, uh, make sure you're connecting with your life group to see what kind of break you're taking over the holidays and uh, when you start back in the new year. All right? Oh, I will tell you that next uh, month, church family dinner, the first day, the first Wednesday of the month is actually the first. So we won't have church family dinner on the first. We're going to bump it to the eighth. All right? So that's enough announcements. You can find the rest in your bulletin. Colossians chapter 4 is where we are, and these are the words of the Apostle Paul in one of his final passages of this letter, starting in verse 2, which is the verse we used last week, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of, what was the word? Thanksgiving. And so it was uh, appropriate for us to focus on Thanksgiving last week, the attitude of gratitude as we talked about last week and how we teach our kids that as well. But that is the, that is the intro line to really a whole, a whole thought that the Apostle Paul is going to leave us with. You would think that this this portion of Colossians chapter 4 would really be uh, just, the, just the final greetings, just the final words, the salutations, the, the stuff that he says as he typically does uh, at the end of all of his letters. You would think it'd just be kind of the stuff that you typically, you know, speed through and finish the letter with, right? So let me just ask you to pause. Don't go through Colossians chapter 4 like it's just, like it's just fluff words because it's not. He's got a challenge for us before he gets even to those final greetings. And we're going to spend some time even in the final greetings next week. In a word, the challenge is going to be evangelism. Now, let me tell you how this fits into Paul's argument. What he's been doing is telling us what real Christianity is as opposed to what fraudulent Christianity is. And as you can imagine, in the first century, there was, 
they, they were trying to figure out what does this Christian walk thing really look like. And as he begins to talk to the church at Colossae, and as that letter would spread around, he wants to let them know, hey, here's what Christianity really is. And it's not about legalism. It's not about you know mysticism. It's not about all these other schisms that he talks about in 1 and 2 of chapters of Colossians. It, it's, it's something other than those superficial things, because those things don't carry any water, he would say. They make no difference for the remission of your sins. They're all man-made philosophical ideas. Guys come up with these things. They build them on the philosopher that came the generation before them, but they all fall short. None of them, none of them carries our redemptive plan. And so he begins then to talk about what is Christianity. And you'll remember that he starts in general terms talking about relationships. And he says, you know what? You want to know what Christianity looks like day to day? It looks like... Kindness, long-suffering, grace. It looks like a lot of just the way we treat each other. That's what real Christianity looks like. And he, and he goes through this, this general explanation of in relationships specifically, what does Christianity look like? And then you'll remember he started getting specific. He started stepping on toes. And he said, wives, it looks like this. Husbands, it looks like this. Children, it looks like this. As you're parenting, it looks like this. And when you go to work, it looks like this. And if you're the boss, it's kind of like this. And if you're the employee, hey, you've got to live like this. And so he pulls no punches. He doesn't spend a whole lot of words. He just kind of gets to it. And he says, specifically, here's what Christianity looks like. If you're going to have real Christianity, it doesn't look like these things, first couple chapters. It looks like these things, chapter 3. And so now here's, here's where the next nugget fits. If these things aren't Christianity and these things are, the final thing that he's going to say, if you're going to be Christ-like, if you're going to be Christ-like, there's going to be this, this whole other aspect to your life, not just the relationships you have with each other in the body of Christ, but guess what? There are those who he's going to call without, literally. Your translation is probably going to say they're outsiders. But the idea is that they don't have what you have. How are you going to treat them? What is Christ-likeness when it comes to our relationship with the world who doesn't have what you have found in Jesus Christ? That's a fitting place to end. Evangelism. I don't know about you, but uh, I hope that when my life comes to its final day here on earth, and the final day here on earth looks like a casket in the front of the room and people who love me and people who uh, are going to pay the respects to those who love me, even if they love me or not, uh, they gather together and somebody hopefully will say some nice things. And, um, and You will? Okay, good, thank you. Thank you. I've been worried about that. My brother will say at least one nice thing about me before my days are over. Um, but, but, but is that going to be it? I mean, you ever wonder about that? I mean, have you been to funerals where you, where you sit kind of midway and you see, hey, that's a, lot, a good number of people here. Have you ever wondered like when you leave? And it's especially uh, depressing if it's a close family member, somebody that's meant a lot to you. You wonder, I wonder how long these people are going to even think about this person's life. You know, that actually already happens when we're still alive. We get forgotten, don't we? We were visiting with some friends, Kimberly's family in Indiana, and uh, it's an older couple, a, a retired pastor, and uh, he, was, he was telling my father-in-law just that uh, he's a, a, a bit depressed because his wife has had cancer, and he said the church has done a great job early on. They, they responded well, and he said, you know, a few weeks have gone by now, and treatments have, have progressed and progressed, and he said they've, they've kind of really forgotten about us. And he said, I understand, you know, they're busy and, you know, people move on with their own lives. But it's easy for us, right? Even when we're alive, we forget about each other. I mean, I wonder, and maybe you do too, how long after we're gone it'll take for us to be forgotten. Mark Twain said, lament me for an hour and forget me forever. Is that, is that going to be the testimony of your life? That maybe we'll get together and we'll talk well of you for an hour. Maybe your family will mourn you for the week or longer. But generally speaking, what kind of dent are you making in this world? I'd submit to you that the, the greatest dent you could make not only in this world but in eternity is the work you do in the area of evangelism. And Paul's not going to use that word evangelism. But what he's going to deal with here before he closes this letter is in fact that very thing. What are you, what are you spending your life on? 
There's a whole lot of stuff worth spending your life on. Hopefully you're spending your life on things that are bigger than you. But I'll just tell you, for this pastor, and I don't do it enough, but for this pastor, I've found that the most, uh, and I can't find any other words but trite words at this point, the most complete, the most whole, the most right in the world that I feel is when I'm, I'm telling someone who does not know about Christ about what Christ has done for me and therefore for them. There's just something about in, in that moment. I don't find it, honestly, in preaching as much. I don't even find it in discipleship. But when I engage in evangelism, when I engage in sharing the good news, it just feels like it's what I'm supposed to do. And I don't think that's just because I've been called into ministry. More on that in a minute. I think, I think you would find the same thing. For those of you who share the gospel regularly, I, I bet you've encountered that same feeling. Like this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Not that that's the only thing you do. Not that God doesn't call you to a career. He doesn't call you to raise a family. He doesn't call you to be a part of society and a community and a businessman or a teacher or whatever the case may be. But as a whole, if there's, if there's, not, if there's not some sharing of what Paul's going to call this mystery of Jesus Christ, I think there's an incompleteness. Maybe that's why Paul ends right here. Maybe that's why this is a part of his final words. I don't know what the current statistic is for the, the amount of or the percentage of the church who actually does evangelism, but it used to be around 2 or 3% of the body of Christ actually engages in sharing their faith. Something, something sound wrong about that? For a lot of reasons? Yeah. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Colossians 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. That word keeping alert is a word used for a soldier. If your name is Greg, this is where your name comes from. It's the, the root word here is Greg. It means to keep watch. It's a word used of a soldier who stands a post and is diligent to keep aware of what's going on. And so pray, and as you pray, do it, with, do it with a seriousness of a soldier that keeps fervent watch. Well, keep going. So our prayer, fervently, with an attitude of thanksgiving, we talked about last week, but then he's going to add something here. Verse 3, pray at the same time as we're, as we're standing that wall. Here, here's specifically something to be praying about. For us as well, and who's the us here? Paul will tell us here in the salutations who all the us were, all of his comrades in arms, all of his fellow laborers who've been working towards spreading this mystery of Christ. That's the us here in context. Pray at the same time for us as well, and here's specifically what he asked for prayer, that God will open up to us a door for the word. And we will open up for us a door for the word. It's a phrase that Paul uses many times. To open up the door is this idea that allows things to go and come. It's an access idea. Paul asks us, and he asks the church at Colossae, to pray for him and all those with him that God, notice that it's, it's God who's the acting agent, pray that God do something. Do what? Open the door. For us, look what he asked for the door to be open for us, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Another unique phrase to the Apostle Paul. What does it mean to open a door for the word for us? Open it so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. An open door lets me go and it lets them come. That's the idea. It's not just prayer that is needed for evangelism. Notice that prayer asks God to do the major activity of evangelism. You ever wonder whose job evangelism is? Well, Paul says here, we start with prayer. But prayer asks God to do his job. What is God's job? God's job is to be the acting agent to open a door. Open a door for what? So that he, Paul, and those with him could do the speaking. So that's their part. But God has to open that door. God, in all of his sovereignty, has to, has to start the process. Prayer precedes successful evangelism, but only in that it asks God to do the difficult work of opening 
the doors. You could see also Acts 14.27, God opened the door of the hearts of those who Paul was dealing with and those who were being dealt with there in the first century. Acts 16 talks about a woman named Lydia, and it says that God opened the heart of Lydia. Do you realize that in evangelism, God has to do that initial work? What a relief. What a removal of pressure that is. So Paul says, hey, church, you pray. Pray for us that we speak, but pray that God opens the doors so that we can speak. Pray that there's open access for me to go out and say what I need to say, but also so that they can enter in in response. Pray that we have the grace to speak. Pray that there is grace to hear and respond. Grace is needed. God's grace. Grace comes from the Father. God has to do his part. In all of his sovereignty, if God doesn't open those doors, Paul can speak all he wants to. But there'll be no access. So what's Paul's request? Pray, obviously. Pray with thanksgiving, with that attitude. And at the same time that you're standing post in prayer, pray that God would open up doors. That he would open up doors. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said this, I shall remain in Ephesus till Pentecost because a wide door for effective service has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2, he would say it this way, When I came to Troas for the gospel and when a door was opened for me from the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit because it was a job to do. Paul speaks very often of this open door and it's always God's responsibility to open that door. Well, that's good news. Our job is to pray. But our job also, Paul's job here as he, as he takes it, is to speak. So pray that there is a door open, and a door open so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. You know what it means to speak forth? It means to proclaim. It means to share. It means to tell the truth. It's the idea of a messenger. So Paul sees himself and his cohorts, his co-labors as messengers. God, open a door so I have access to share the message you want to share. Specifically, notice what he calls the message. Did you see it? It's another Pauline phrase. I think he uses it at least seven times. The mystery of Christ. The idea of a mystery here in the Greek word is that it's information. It's a body of truth that has been kept secret. It's been hidden. The idea here in the Apostle Paul's mind is that unless we, as those who have been um, revealed that mystery, unless we share it, they can't know the secret. It's mysterious to them. And unless God open a door and give me an opportunity to speak, and unless I speak and proclaim that mystery, unless I pull the curtains back and share an explanation of what the mystery of Christ is, namely his birth, incarnation, and resurrection uh, post-crucifixion, unless I'm able to share the truth of that mysterious activity of God, then there is no opportunity for salvation. You see what he's doing here? Mystery of Christ. In fact, if you think about it, really smart guys have a, have a greater problem very often just as really rich guys have a greater problem very often with the simplicity of the gospel. It's too simple. It's mysterious in the sense that it doesn't, it doesn't make human sense. But that's what he's been arguing for the whole time, hasn't he? Don't go on what makes human sense, because in every religion that's based on what makes human sense, who is the agent of your salvation? You are. I've said this to you many times. If you look at any other religion apart from Christianity, you are the acting agent in your salvation. Every other religion, which is, which is designed by humanity and our best ideas, our best thinkers, we all come up with, on our own, a way for us to appease God by our own efforts, a way for us to earn God's appreciation and recognition. But at the end of our life, we die still with this great question mark. Is it going to be enough? That's every other religion. You look at them. Every other religion puts you in the equation ahead of God as the acting agent. What do I need to do to impress God so that he doesn't drop the hammer on me? Christianity is not the, the thinking of the best philosophers of humanity. We always go to what I can do. No one sat around thinking of the gospel saying, how about we get God 
incarnate himself, born in a manger, and then he'll grow up and he'll be this gentle and kind guy and he will actually give his life for us and we by faith through grace. We just receive that and we don't do anything at all. Even the faith that we have, he will grant to us. We didn't come up with that. Only Christianity has that message. So that's, that's part of the, the sharing of the mystery of Christ. That's, that's information that you've been privy to via the Holy Spirit and God's grace. And Paul says, I need an open door. Will you pray for it? I need an open door. And the only one that can open the door is God. Because the door that I need open is the door in their hearts. And God's the only one who can open that door. And unless He opens that door, I can't speak forth this mystery. And even if I tell them, they won't get it because their door will be shut and it will fall on deaf ears. You see where he's going here? So, um, by the way, he would say here, do you notice? So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. And then you get a parenthesis, for which I have also been imprisoned. By the way, he would say, this sharing of the mystery, it might just get you thrown in jail. Are you all right with that? Are you okay to take the lumps with the job? Are you okay that this might be dirty work, hard work, difficult work? You're not going to be lauded over it. You might actually be cast into a pit because of this message. It'll make it'll make such it'll be such nonsense to some that hear it that they will shun you. It is offensive, the Bible says, this gospel. It is offensive. Why is it offensive? It's offensive because it doesn't it doesn't build itself on the efforts of man. It requires men and women to wave a white flag and say, I give up, there's nothing I can do. Paul says that's an offensive, and, they, and they'll throw you in jail because of it, just like they've done me. So you pray. Pray that God opens doors. Pray that he opens doors so that I can do my job. What's my job? Just to speak the truth. The truth of what? This mystery of Christ, his birth, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, grace, faith, that I might tell the truth. That's Paul's job. Let me preach to you a little bit here, a message within a message. Um, and this is this is good news on top of the good news. Um, if you understand how this works, if you if you see evangelism the way Paul sees it, it it removes such pressure from your efforts. If you understand that the salvation, the opening of a heart of a human, is only the act of God's sovereign work, and not your slick salesmanship, what a relief that is. I can't tell you how many, how many Christians are living their lives, how many churches are preaching uh, a gospel that requires you to become great evangelical salesmen with slick tactics and manipulative efforts. And you go home thinking, if I were only better at this thing, if only I could sell Jesus better, if only I were a better salesman, if only I could... If only I could Talk to them like Eric Scoggins can talk to them. <laughs> Eric doesn't care who it is, where they are, what's going on. He's going to give you Jesus. But we're not all Eric's. But guess what? You don't, have to be, you don't have to be a salesman. In fact, the gospel, the biblical gospel, as Paul is trying to share it here in Colossians, a correct understanding of, of, of Christ-like even evangelism is not a manipulative thing. It's speak the truth of this thing that has been hidden from their hearts. All the while praying that God is opening the door. Because unless he does, it's going to fall on rocks. The soil is not going to be what it needs to be. The seed will not be received. It's not manipulating the audience or tweaking the gospel to be palatable. But that's going on. Day after day. All right. End of that sermon within a sermon. Verse 4. Here's our job. He's already said that he has to make it clear. Or he's already said that he needs to speak forth the mystery of Christ. But now in verse 4 he's going to tell you how he needs to speak it. And in, and in Paul's heart towards evangelism, his, his prayer is that he will make it clear the way I ought 
to speak. Paul's prayer is that God would open a door, that he would speak the truth of the mystery of Christ, and the only pressure that Paul feels is that he just gets the truth right. See what Paul says here? My only, my only struggle is, is that I get out of the way of the truth. Your job in sharing the gospel is just to be clear. To be clear. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to do. Is to be able to clearly explain sin, repentance, justification, redemption, substitution. What, what I was without Christ. What my hope was without Him. What He did for me. How that applies to me. How it covers me. How it counts for me. And now how that's not just good news for me, but how it's good news for, for you too. Are you able to do that? Are you able, as Paul prays here, are you able to speak forth the mystery of Christ? Can you explain that mystery in a clear way? In the way, Paul says, you ought to be able to do. Can you do that? If you can't do it, figure it out. Find a way. Get in our way of the master class. Grab somebody who's been through the way of the master class. Call me. Say, Pastor, I don't think that if I had the opportunity, I don't think that if God opened the door tomorrow for me to share the gospel with the most lost family member I have, that I could speak it clearly. And I need to be able to do that. I want to be able to speak it clear as I ought to be able to do. And we'll help you. We'll get you that information. It's amazing how, how many of us uh, have, have found Christ and found grace but it's difficult for us to unpack grace to somebody else. But you can do it. And you don't even have to be a salesman. And you don't have to walk away thinking, ah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't sell it enough. I mean, they walked away and they said, eh, I don't believe in any of that stuff. You don't have to walk away thinking that, that you failed. What is your job? What does Paul think his job is? His job is pray for open doors, speak it forth, Speak it clearly, as I ought to speak it. And guess who has to handle the rest? God does. It's his job. I don't know what you thought when you thought, well, Paul's going to leave us here at the end of this letter with a challenge towards evangelism. Probably your initial thought was to, to bow up a little bit, put up some walls in your heart and mind, because you just don't feel like that is your, your job. And maybe even reading this as Paul writes it, we could end it right here in verse 4, couldn't we? I mean, it'd be great. We pray. We stay alert. Keep an attitude of thanksgiving. We'll pray for Paul and all those who are with him so that they can speak the word as God opens the doors and they speak it as they ought to speak it nice and clear. And, and you and I, we just pray for those guys. And if they're going to go somewhere far, we'll even, we'll even pay for them to go. Say, God bless. We'll pray for you. It'd be fine if he left it right there, wouldn't it? Guess what? He doesn't leave it right there. You see, the next sentence puts you and I on the hook. So this isn't just about the professional. It's not just about the Apostle Paul speaking it as he ought to speak it. Look at what he says next. Verse 5, conduct, what's the word? Yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Doggone it, Paul. I would have prayed for you. I would have sent you money. But now, are you saying that I've got, to, I've got to live out my Christianity in such a way that I have this attitude towards outsiders that you have? That's right. So take a deep breath and let's look at it. What is he saying here? Conduct yourselves. Conduct yourselves with wisdom. Towards outsiders. The idea there of the outsiders is those who are without. What are they without? They're without understanding of that mystery of Christ. So we're praying God opens doors. And all the while, as we're praying for opportunities, open doors in hearts of men and women around us. We need to be conducting ourselves, living our Christianity acting out our Christianity, walking out our Christianity in such a way, with such wisdom, 
towards these people that we are, here's the phrase, making the most of the opportunity. Anybody got a King James? Bring today, right? King James, New King James? In the King James, it gives a different translation. It's a more wooden translation, you would say, of the Greek. A more wooden translation, a more literal translation from the very Greek words would be redeeming the times. And we don't really understand what that means as much as the first century folks would because they use that phraseology a little more than we do. To redeem the times is, is, is worth unpacking. First of all, let me tell you what it means to redeem. Within the context here, redeeming means that you will buy back completely. That you will buy something up. However much you can purchase of it, you will buy it in full. Um, it's the word ex agorazo. It means that whatever's there, you, you pull it out and you take it, you purchase it. That's what it means to redeem. We get the idea of buying it back. If you redeem something, you get money back for it. All right? Um, as Paul uses it, you could think of it in a couple of different ways. Um, it would be to take advantage of a sale. So some of you on Black Friday decided to lose your mind and go crazy and go out shopping. Okay? If a woman decides that they're going to make a plan and go out and shop on Black Friday and take advantage of those sales, they're going to go out and in that limited amount of time, they're going to buy up whatever they can buy. That's the idea of redemption here. Guys, if you're going to go uh, as a businessman or as a businesswoman and you're going to, if you're going to take advantage of a low, uh, a low market and you're going to buy up as many stocks as you can buy as quick as you can, that's what it means to redeem something. You're going to buy all that you can buy. Now, it ties into the other word that he uses, Kairos, it's the word for time, redeeming the times. It could also maybe be translated season, redeeming the season. So buying up the season, buying up the time. There's a couple words in the Greek that you would be well to understand uh, that Paul could have used here for time. All right? One of the words he could have used was chronos. We get the word chronology. It's, it's the word for time in a, in a set order. So if, if he were to use the word chronology, it would be like listing out an order of events. That would be chronology, and you use that word. There's another word in the Greek, though, that Paul uses here. He doesn't use chronology. He uses the word kairos. And kairos is the idea of a season or a set portion of time. So if you were to talk about when I, back when I was a kid, that was a set portion of your life. That was a kairos of your life. It was a season of your life. It was a time period of your life. It's not necessarily the order of events, but it's a, it's a marked time. In the Bible, there are different seasons within history. They fall chronologically, yes, but within seasons, you have, uh, in, in general terms, you have the time of the patriarchs. That was a season. That was a kairos. You have the time from Christ, um, uh, from the patriarchs, uh, from Moses to Christ. That was the time of the law, you could say. There was a season of law that ruled. There was a time from Christ's death to his return that we call the, the season or the time of the church. It's the time also called the time of grace. That, by the way, is the season, the kairos that we're in right now. Someday, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we are all alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. At that point, we enter a new season. There'll be a time of tribulation. There'll be a time of kingdom. There'll be a time where eternity begins and never ends again. And so there are seasons in Scripture. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says, redeem the kairos. So now put that together. If you go out on Black Friday and you know that for a set season, for that day, they're going to be the best sales of the whole year, you're going to buy up as much as you can buy up that day. If stocks are low in a certain season because of the way the market is ebbing and flowing, and you attempt to buy up as much as you can, you gather as much money as you can at that low market so that you can buy up as much as you can, that's a kairos that makes it worth redeeming the time. You follow where I'm going? What time are we in, Paul? Well, we're in the time of the church. We're in the season of grace. Old Testament picture of the season of grace is when, um, is when Israel and Moses are crossing the, the, the sea there and God splits the waters back and the, the Ark of the Covenant goes in. You remember this? 
The Ark of the Covenant goes in. Joshua leads the people from, from, from death to life to the promised land, from slavery to the promised land. As long as, as long as the word of God, the presence of God is there in, in the waters, the flood waters are held back. And all the people get to cross on dry ground. And it says all of them got across. But as soon as that, that presence of God is removed, and it will be removed, then if you're still caught in the floodwaters, Egyptians, then you get drowned. That's a season. That's a season that the Old Testament would use to be a type of what God is talking about in the season of grace in the New Testament. Paul believes as he writes this, that he's in a season of grace. He's in a, he's in a kairos of grace. And his, his thought is, is that he's going to give his life because of where history is when he's alive. He's going to give his life to buy up as many souls as he possibly can before that season comes to an end, before the sale is over, before the floodwaters return to their rightful place and there is no more grace Paul says, I'm going to give my life to speaking forth the mystery of Christ. I'm going to speak it clear, clear as I ought. And guess what? You you don't get to just pray. You need to live your life. Real Christianity, you want to know what it is? It's conducting yourself towards the outsiders that I'm giving my life to, Paul would say, in a way that is so wise that your life, at the final evaluation of it, it looks like you made Great investments. It looks like you were the best Black Friday shopper of souls there could ever be. Because you saw that you were in a season of grace. But you knew that that season would be over one day. But you didn't waste that time. You redeemed the time. You bought up as many souls as you could. Hmm. With such a challenging verse. If Paul left us right there, if we were to step up to that challenge, and many, many do, at least for a time, if we were to step up to that challenge and become zealous for the mystery of Jesus and go out speaking forth this word as we ought to speak it clearly, Paul, Paul ends here with a caution. I think, it's, I think it's worth noting that he doesn't just pump us up and send us out there as good soldiers into the battle with no more wisdom. We conduct ourselves as wisdom, and I think he's going to unpack it a little bit for us in the next verse. Look at what he says. When you go out, this, this making the most of the opportunity, be careful. Don't be reckless might be a good, good way to think of what Paul means by this next verse. Let your speech always be with, what's the word? Grace, and then he's going to give a phrase of what he means by, let your speech always be with grace. So Paul says, I'm going to go out there and speak, just as I ought to, clearly. You go out and speak. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. And as you go out there and as you speak, speak with grace. Hmm, sounds good. What does that mean, Paul? He gives you a picture. He says, your speech ought to be seasoned with salt. Now, what does that mean? Last night we were on our way back from Thanksgiving, stopped at a restaurant. Grady got some macaroni and cheese. He said, this tastes like nothing. And so mom said, put some salt on it. And he looked at her like, what is that going to do? I'll try it. And so he sprinkled a little salt on there, stirred it up. Tastes a little better. Needs a little more. Sprinkled a little more salt on it, stirred it up. His macaroni and cheese came to life. And he ate the rest of the bowl. And he had just asked me, he said, Dad, how do, you, how do you figure out what you're going to say on Sunday mornings? And I said, son, that's a good example of how I figure out what I've got to say. In tomorrow's verse, Paul uses this phrase and he says that we should share the gospel. We should speak to people about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, but we should do it with grace. And then he says we should do it like our words are seasoned with salt. And he looked at me and I said, what do you think he means by that? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, it's kind of like your macaroni and cheese. When you put salt on it, what happened? It tastes better. Hmm. Maybe Paul means that we're supposed to conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. Our words should be with grace. Maybe we are, our words ought to taste better. Not just coming off of our tongue, but when they're swallowed by those who hear them. And I think he got it. I said, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. An open door in the heart of my own son. And Cameron and I, I think both of you are like, wow, okay. 
Do you get what he means here? He doesn't just send us off half-cocked here, folks. It's not just about your zealousness. Remember, God's the one who's going to be at work here in the hearts of men. He's the one that's got to open the door. And in fact, Paul would say at the end of this passage on evangelism, hey, listen, don't mess it up. My translation, don't mess it up by being harsh, by being unkind, by being condemning when you go out and speak about this thing that is all about grace. This mystery of Jesus is not about them being bad guys and you're the good guys. This mystery of Jesus Christ is not about they're sinful and you're holy. How many of us go out and we think evangelism is going out and telling the bad guys how they can become good guys? That's not it. Do you understand that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food? It's one leper telling another leper where they can be healed? How many of us go out and we think that evangelism is not only going to be this this manipulative salesmanship, the way you package it, how slick you are and how good you can convince them and how wise you can be to argue against whatever they throw up as a defense and how you can prove them to be an idiot. What good does that do? Paul says, pray that God opens doors. Pray that I can speak forth this mystery, that I can speak it clearly the way I ought to speak it. Pray that you can do that too. Pray that you conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. Don't be, don't be, I won't say idiots, but I feel like I shouldn't just call us idiots. (laughs) Be wise. Uh, Do you realize what what a delicate job this is? And then while souls are not our responsibility, speaking forth the word of truth is our responsibility. Speaking it clearly is our responsibility. And making sure that in our, our attitudes, we get out of the way. There should be no harshness. There should be no criticalness. There should be no condescending spirit. Proverbs, the wise in heart will be called understanding. The wise in heart will be called understanding. Could that be said of you when you share with the lost, with those without, with the outsiders? When you share the mystery... Would you be called wise because, because you appear to have understanding? It goes on to say in Proverbs, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Salt your words so that they taste better. When you put salt on fruit, it makes that fruit alive. When you put salt on your food, it makes it taste better. Make sure your attitude makes your words taste better. Because, because there's a glitch here. If your attitude gets in the way of speaking this truth, somebody could walk away because of your attitude. There's nothing condescending about one beggar sharing with another beggar. There's nothing critical about one leper sharing with another leper. Be kind. In our evangelism, our Savior has been kind and gentle. Amen? Let me tell you a story to close here. It's in 2 Kings chapter 7. Ricky, come on up, brother. In 2 Kings chapter 7, there's a story that I think maybe is a good Old Testament illustration of what we're, we're trying to comprehend here in Paul's closing words. 2 Kings is chock full of many wonderful stories of the gospel and how the gospel is to be handled. I've considered even after Colossians is over and the holidays are over doing a short series in 2 Kings specifically because there's so many good stories that translate into New Testament principles. This is one of them. It's one of my favorites. 2 Kings chapter 7, Elijah is on the scene. There's a famine in the land. I'm going to read it to you and I think you'll understand. Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, A measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven. Interesting phrase. We've gone from doors to windows. Could this thing be? Could God provide? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes but you will not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And here's what they said to one another. 
Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. And if we sit here at the gate, we will die also. So, therefore come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we live. And if they kill us, we will die. But so what? We're going to die here at the gate or in the city because of the famine. What would you do? They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. Hmm. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and they fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp just as it was, and they fled for their life. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and they ate and they drank and they carried from there silver and gold and clothes and, and went and hid them. And then they came back and returned and entered another tent and carried from there also. And they went and hid them. And then verse 9, they said to one another in brilliance, in grace, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of, what does it say? Good news. But we are keeping it silent. If we wait until morning, if we wait until the sun rises, if we wait till the sun comes back, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come. Let us, what are the words? Go and tell the king's household. What a, what a picture. What a picture of you and I. Lepers in need. God moves and makes provision for our flesh and for our soul. We find ourselves in our salvation. Eating and drinking. Gold, silver. Storing away for ourselves. But at some point, guess what? You should raise your eyes. And say, you know what? Something about this just isn't right. You know what wasn't right about it? That they were the only ones being blessed. By the good news. That there's salvation from the famine in the land. So what should we do? We should probably go tell the rest of those starving, hungry, lost and dying folks in our camp. That there's, there's something to eat here that will save their life. It's not right for us just to eat, drink, and be merry and go about our day when there are those who are dying without. Because we've, we've got good news. So we should go and tell. And they do. And the nation eats. Some don't believe. But they did the right thing. Paul, what does it look like to be a Christian? There's a whole lot of things that this world would tell you it looks like, but it doesn't. It doesn't add up to Christianity. Christianity adds up to to a whole lot. One of the things that it means to be Christ-like is this. that, That when you realize that you have been seated at the banquet table by the grace and favor of the Son of God, by His shed blood, there ought to be a time where you look up from your bounty and say, there should be others here. This is good news, what I've found. I need to go into That's That's true Christianity. Is that what your Christianity looks like? How about we pray? that all of our Christianity looks more like it. Why don't you stand with me? Father God, we're not smarter than those who are still without. Those who are outside of grace is not because they weren't as wise as us. 
It's not because they weren't as astute to the gospel as us. Father, in your providence and in your sovereignty and in your timing, you've yet to you've yet to open the door of their heart. And maybe, Lord, the door of their heart has long been open, but there's been no one to speak forth the mystery of Jesus, your son. The redemption, the healing, the provision that is in the blood of Christ. Maybe, maybe we've not gone forth to speak the word of truth as we, as we ought to speak it with clarity. Maybe we've done it, Lord, and maybe we've, maybe we've done some damage because we've had, we've had an attitude that we've, we've found holiness and we've put ourselves on another level instead of beggar to beggar. Lord, don't let that be true. We want what Paul has been calling for in this letter to the Colossians. We want genuine and authentic Christianity. None of us are perfect here, Lord. None of us are the evangelists that we've been called to be. Maybe we need to start right here in this prayer. Taking a moment right now to pray for an open door, an open window from heaven in our own our own circle our own family, our own neighborhood, our own workplace. Lord, right now, we ask for an open door. We'll continue to stand watch on that post of prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving, asking you to open those doors. Lord, we pray that you would give us great wisdom on how we act towards outsiders. We know that, that this, this season of grace will not last forever. We've only got a limited time to make purchases of, of souls by your blood. We want it to be said of us on our final days that we invested well. And whatever else we do with our life on this earth, might it be said on our, on, our final, on our final day that we were about the business of souls. We redeemed the time that was allotted to us. In Jesus' name.